Hello, OCD family community. Have you heard that one about why the Instapot was dented? They say it couldn't take the pressure. Oh, get it? Pressure cooker. Couldn't take it. I mean, it's funnier when I explain it, right? <laughs> and while clearly a corny joke totally spelled out for the obvious screams family, how does this relate even a little bit to OCD? Well, get comfy, fam, because I can't wait to share that answer with you and more. I'm Nicole Morris, licensed marriage and family therapist and mental health correspondent. And let me be the first to say, welcome to the family. The OCD family, that is. I am here to create a community of support for family members, spouses, partners, parents, adult children, as there may be adult words, and chosen family of OCD sufferers and their community. I've had over 22 years of experience in the mental health field, but please note that this information does not qualify or substitute as a diagnostic evaluation, therapy, or treatment, and it is presented on an as-is basis. Please follow up with a qualified mental health provider in your area regarding concerns for yourself or loved ones. Thank you for joining us today. Now, let's get started. All right. So, more on the dent chat to come. I know, what a cliffhanger. You're like, tell me, make it make sense. Yeah, I will, I promise. But first, family, good to be with you again. And can you believe that we're already over a week into February? I mean, it's pretty impressive considering January felt like it was, I don't know, approximately 827 days long. <laughs> and we're already almost to the halfway point of the month and it's a leap year. Time is just flying by. It's wild. But welcome back, family. I'm so glad you are joining us here today at the OCD Family Podcast. We like to have fun, but we also like to keep it real with support and resources because you, fam, you add an incredible strength and value to our beloved OCD warriors. So whether you're new to this family gathering or you've been around for a minute now, we're so glad you're here because we are better together. And today is a bit of a treat, which I say almost every week, but I have to say it is. It's treaty because our special guest is OCD expert and lived experience warrior, Mr. John Hirschfield, licensed marriage and family therapist. That's right, folks. He's an LMFT. Yeah, you know, he. Mm. I'm not sure how that one landed, but that's OK. I'm, I'm leaning in, fam. I'm leaning in. But uh, I told you I like to make up songs, right? Right, John? Or parodies, for that matter. But for anyone just getting acquainted with John, he is the director of the Center for OCD and Anxiety at Shepherd Pratt in Towson, Maryland, which specializes in the treatment of OCD and related disorders in both outpatient and residential settings. He is the author of When a Family Member Has OCD. Hey! Fam, this collaboration is making sense, isn't it? Yes, we see you, fam. And he's also written Overcoming Harm OCD, the OCD workbook for teens, and is the co-author of the Unwanted Thoughts and Intense Emotions workbook, Everyday Mindfulness for OCD, which I really, I really do like that book. I think it came out within the last year or so, and I've found that to be a very helpful book as well. So just throwing that out there. He's also written the Mindfulness workbook for OCD. And all of these books are highly regarded in our professional circles. So I really appreciate that he could come today because we're going to focus, as you might have suspected, a bit more on when a family member has OCD. Because this is you and me. And it's kind of our whole vibe, right? So I'm really thankful that John could spare some time to chat a bit with the fam. 
Also, John is a member of the International OCD Foundation Scientific and Clinical Advisory Board, and he is on the faculty of their Behavioral Therapy Training Institute, which we also refer to as the BTTI around these parts. So, I mean, he knows a thing or two about a thing or two here. And today we're going to chat with John and mix it up a bit because, well, we'll highlight some of the helpful takeaways from the book, and it is. It's a great book. But we're also going to be talking about what inspired John to become an OCD specialist. We're going to break down some common myths around OCD, and we're going to play a little Never Have I Ever OCD edition game. We love games here, right? So I'm so glad you could join us, fam, for a fun yet informative conversation. And we're going to round out our time with John's top tips and recommendations for helping your loved one with OCD. Also, I want you to keep an ear out for a dent or two. Ha <laughs> ha, wink, wink. Because we may just find out what the dents and their relationship to the pressure and OCD are all about. So keep an ear open for that. And without further ado, let's do this. All right, welcome back to the OCD Family Podcast. And today, as I said, we are in for a treat because we have John Hirschfield, a fellow licensed marriage and family therapist. Hello. But I am so excited to have you here today because John is very well established in our field. I'm going to guess actually a good amount of people tuning in are familiar with you, John. But for folks that aren't, John is one of our experts in the OCD field. He's written many books. I'm guessing probably contributed to chapters in different publications as well, John. Is that right? Yeah, that's a more recent development, but I have I have had the opportunity to do that. Yes. Look at you. It's becoming like a career bucket list sort of thing. There you, know? you go. Oh, my name is in a publication. Neat. Yes. No, we love publications. We love research. We're very research based here at the podcast. And so He's written many books. One book that he has written in particular that really hits the heart of this community is that he's written a book about when a family member has OCD. As a number of our colleagues have, we talked with John Abramowitz last year about his book, and these books have been out for a bit, but they are really, really helpful in terms of just providing hope, breaking down stigma, giving some practical tips. And I think this is just going to be a great time. But I think people can check out the book and they can read the book. And so we're not going to stay completely focused on all the content of the book. We're going to have some fun today because we're with the fam. And is it really family if you're not playing games and shooting the shit together? So what we are going to start with today is in terms of treating OCD, You've been pretty open in the different books that you've written, and also you can find John doing and participating in live streams on iocdf.org or over at their YouTube channel. You probably worked with no CD. I'm sure that you've made the rounds there. Uh, yeah, they keep trying to hire me. I keep getting these stock emails from them like, are you interested in working in OCD? Uh-huh. <laughs> Have you ever considered getting certified? Like, an email, Patrick. <laughs> Patrick's like, oh, I am like steps away from that automated email. <laughs> I know. But they're like, would you like to become a licensed therapist in ERP treatment? <laughs> no, <laughs> they do good work. They help a lot of people. They, yeah. They Incredible network. They do. They do. And they specialize in treatment for OCD. So I was very happy to hear that I have a client whose sibling is on BetterHelp. And they were like, oh, yeah, they for sure have OCD now that they're learning about my OCD. And the BetterHelp therapist was helping them because they were like, oh, I don't know about this, but I'll learn. 
which is important. But in terms of just being able to trust that a treatment database like NoCD is offering evidence-based treatment is important. So, you know, this is actually a good segue into our first question because I'm curious, you've been open about your dad's a psychiatrist, about understanding OCD, lived experience, and having family members with OCD. What led you into treating OCD? Was this always something that interested you, or did you kind of fall into it in your journey? Like, we'd love to hear that story. Yeah, thanks for asking. I, I guess you could say it, it chose me before I chose it. I had been living with OCD, waxing and waning throughout my life since as far back as I could remember. Mm-hmm. And and I think a lot of people had this experience where sometimes the OCD either it changes shape or form or backs off or whatever, but there was, you know, sort of a period in my 20s where it, just, it, it was just something that I lived with, but it wasn't something that I thought about a lot. Mm-hmm. And I was sort of of the mind of like, as long as things go a certain way, I just need to know that I have OCD and that I need to make sure they go a certain way and I can I can handle it. But kind of in my late 20s, kind of arrived in a place where my OCD was swinging bigger and decided, like, let's see if you can handle this. And I couldn't. Yeah. And so I went back into treatment and started taking it very seriously. And in the course of treatment, and this was in the days of like Yahoo email based groups <laughs> for social media, really. And um, so I was looking for just people to relate to because I, I found pretty early on that people in my social group had no idea what I was upset about or why or you know, yeah. why, why such a big deal. Yeah. So I found this group of people online who were upset all the time too and started interacting with them. So I would be describing what I was going through in my treatment and then I would notice that people were saying things that they, they weren't the same things I was obsessing about, but they were relating to their experience the same way I was relating to mine. And so I would be able to kind of offer validation, like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Well, you know, here's here's probably how it would be handled in therapy. Or, you know, I was devouring all the OCD books. You know, I was being a very good patient. Uh-huh. And, uh, uh-huh. uh, through that process, I really discovered that I like communicating with people on that level, right? And I like kind of influencing people's stories and, and and being a part of watching them grow. And people, I think, in that environment started to assume that I was a therapist, which is kind of funny. And I was like correcting them. I was like, nope, just some rando on the internet. You know, just, you know, enough people started suggesting that uh, maybe I, I should consider shifting careers. I'd been an actor my whole life. I started as a kid. I used to go, my mom used to drive me up to New York from Baltimore for auditions. I went to NYU, then I moved to LA and I would work periodically. I would, you know, show up with a line or two on a TV show or get a commercial and something like that. And, you know, those days when you're working, it's like, oh, it's, everything is wonderful. This is great. I've made it, you You've know. You've made and, it, right. And then the job is done and then you're done too. Like you're, all of your worth just, you know, left the set and then you're back to trying to figure out what what the meaning of life is. And so I started thinking about, you know, what, what a career shift would be like. And enough people suggested that, you know, it is a thing. You could get a master's in, in psychology. You could become a therapist. It really wasn't on my mind until then. So it was this combination of realizing I needed something. I needed structure in my life and I needed purpose in my life. And I wasn't getting from the career I had chosen already. And and it was really fulfilling. Like it was really awe-inspiring. And people would email me back and be like, oh, I tried this thing you suggested and it helped. Or just hearing you articulate it made a difference. And now I, I'm saying these things. And what would John do? It's like in the minds of people around the world. And I was like, wow, this is a pretty amazing thing. Yeah. Uh, so I was, I was not sure it was the right thing to do, but I knew I had to do something. And so it felt like a big exposure to, to take that risk of like, you know, whatever. It's just the rest of my life. Let's see what happens. Okay. And, just and, that. Uh, yeah. 
But, you know, day one of graduate school, I'm sitting in there in this class and I'm looking around and going, yeah, yeah, this is it. This is what I'm supposed to be doing. It just, it felt right. Yeah. And then it was a process of years of kind of getting through what I needed to get through. And I was, I had kind of a not great attitude about it. I was like, you know, what's all this psychoanalytic nonsense? Why do I have to learn this or that? I want to treat OCD. Like I, you know, I thought I already kind of knew everything, but in my age, reflecting back on it, I'm really glad I learned more than just CBT for OCD, which is, that's my passion to have a more comprehensive understanding of psychology and people in general and had it in the art of therapy really helped to, to shape me so that when I did get through graduate school and get through my practicum and then land at a clinic that was treating OCD. Yeah. Things really kind of took off from there. And I was like, I found my calling. Yeah. You know. So you have the unique experience of going into graduate school. You knew you wanted to specialize in OCD. How did your graduate program do in terms of teaching OCD? Was it a school that was more in the know or was it a slide in a psychopathology course? <laughs> like what was that? What was that I don't think OCD like? was mentioned even once. No, I think. I mean, I'm sure it was mentioned in the class on the DSM or something like that. But no, I, there was one elective in CBT, and that guy knew OCD and anxiety pretty well. I mean, that was a it was a general course on CBT and covered other things. But but he knew what he's talking about. Uh, I don't blame them for that. I mean, they're not really set up to be a specialty training program. And and this was an imagined family therapy track too. So a lot of the classes were in California. That's much more popular than other states. It's so it was very a, popular. <laughs> I, I chose it because it's the one. That yeah. you could give me access to the OCD people. What do I need? And I was, oh, MFT, that'll work. You know, so this was an 18 month program where yeah. it was all day, every Saturday, Sunday, every other week for a year and a half, and then your practicum and your internship. So I was like, that that made sense. But in the process of that, I'm learning all about family systems. And it's amazing because it, it so influences my work right now. But oh, at yeah. the time, I was like, all right, I mean, just hear these people loud pass these tests, get my degree with Bonnie. Yeah. But I did, this was like 2008. It was kind of funny what you could get away with if you just asked. So I, I asked if I could go to the 2008 IOCDF conference, mm -hmm. uh, write a paper about it and get a credit out of that and call it OCD class. And I got the CBT professor to sign off on it. <laughs> and so I basically created my own class in OCD. Yeah. Uh, so I learned about OCD in graduate school. Yeah, no, I, I love that. I also went to graduate school in California and it was like, you choose MFT track or you went MSW track and you were kind of looking at if you want to do social work, less of your clinical people. And though they had to do hours to get licensed, less of your clinical people were going the social work track. They wanted to work on a system level, usually more looking at kind of how they could improve linkage, how they could track different things. And if you wanted to do more of the clinical hours, at a master's level, you were going to get an MFT in California. And so I totally get that. And it's interesting. And, and I don't follow the programs either because there's so many different things that you could zoom into that aren't zoomed into. You have to do a very general overview of the whole diagnostic manual, really. But what is interesting is I feel, I know I worked in this field 20 some odd years before I really knew and understood what OCD was. And I TA'd, which is, I graded and I was an assistant in grad school for psychopathology. So I really knew the DSM manual. I graded things, I improved tests, I, you know, whatever. 
And I still was like, I've never seen an OCD case until I really learned what it was. And then I was like, oh, shit, I have seen so many OCD cases. And so it was an interesting process. But I love the the story about the Yahoo groups. It was like the baby Reddit back in the day, y'all, or, yeah. you know. <laughs> no, I continue to run, uh, I, you know, I, I, like a lot of things, if I get involved, I get excited. I find a way to make it complicated. So I, I started running those groups in addition to participating in them. And so then I was on the hook for responding to like sometimes hours of emails a day for years, well through the beginning of my career, it was, I just figured this was part of my job was to take care of these faceless, anonymous people. And it was only a few years ago that I passed the torch on to somebody else. Yeah. Uh, and, and some of it was obviously compulsive. Like I'm like checking and feeling over-responsible for people that are not my responsibility. And I'm, right. I'm being armchair therapist, which as a clinician now, like I would hate somebody like, like me doing that. Like it was very not cool, but, but it all worked out. I almost had the inverse experience for what you're describing, where you realized, oh, there was more OCD that you had encountered than you understood. Uh-huh. Since I came to Shepherd Pratt and I'm working in an adult psychiatric residential program with cases that are quite severe and complex, I'm realizing how much I had always assumed was OCD because of the constant exposure to OCD cases that actually was obsessive and was compulsive, but probably isn't OCD. And so I, I find myself sometimes here being as somebody comes in and like, I have OCD, it's your OCD, and I'm supposed to be the OCD guy. And I end up being kind of like the deal breaker where like, actually it's obsessive and compulsive, but trauma is a better explanation for what's going on with this person or bipolar disorder is a better explanation for what's going on with this person. And you could treat the obsessions and the compulsions, but if you don't treat the actual psychiatric condition that they have, the OCD yeah. is just going to keep bouncing back. Yeah. Whether it's a standalone diagnosis or a symptom of the other condition. Right. So one of the things I love about what I'm doing now is I'm constantly learning. It's getting more and more complex, but it's also getting more and more clear, like a, like a three-dimensional object in my mind of OCD is really not this list in the DSM. It's like any condition. It's more complicated than that. It's complicated. There's clusters and conditions. OCD loves a good condition, but there are different factors that you have to look at in terms of, is this egocentonic? Is this a trauma trigger? Is this manifesting and commingling here with this other mental health disorder that is also just as important to treat? It's interesting because here we're more likely to get a bipolar diagnosis where OCD is missed. And not to say that bipolar can't be there as well in this commingling process, but often it's like, oh, that seems extreme and you're not really sleeping at night and you're thinking about all these different things and your mind is racing. It's obviously bipolar. And it's like, exactly. The diagnostic evaluation we use is it. Please say it's not. There's importance to, I think that's why it's so important to have that clinical interview because you can see a lot of traits manifest and really, really overlap. But you also have to have that ability to look at the cluster of symptoms, how they're presenting, how they're engaging, what's the function of them. And it's really important. And, and how do they interact? And how, how do, do they, they interact? each other. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. I don't know if in your drama degree, so if you were focused more on acting, I have a degree in theater. And one of the things I've found really useful in my MFT work, as well as in my (laughs) OCD work, has been just understanding blocking and positioning. We did, I'm sure you guys covered in your MFT course, family sculpting and different things like that. But in terms of my theater program, no matter what you were most interested in, you had to learn how to do it all because likelihood, if you're going to work 
in the theater and entertainment, you're going to need to be able to run different positions. You're not just going to be an ingenue that is like, oh, okay, this was easy. And so it's been very helpful for me and just being able to read other people intuitively. It doesn't mean I'm always right. And look at kind of body stances, postures, especially when we're looking and having conversations about OCD and you have the OCD person completely turned and shut down and the family member, they're like all kind of positioned in these different ways. But it's very, very interesting. And we talk a lot about here, which you also talk about in the book, the importance of the family engagement in the process of understanding OCD, but also in just treatment and recovery and what an important piece of the puzzle that is because it affects interpersonal relationships. And when you come down to it, that's what MFTs do. It's about working with interpersonal relationships, whether it's two people in a dyad or or a couple, family. And here we talk about chosen family, too, because sometimes people are Mm -hmm. disconnected or estranged from their family, but they have people they do feel safe with that are more or less their family. And so we talk about that a lot. Next, we were going to discuss dispelling some of the myths that we have around OCD. And one, and I'm catering this more toward families because, you know, you know how we do it, fam. And so (laughs) in terms of our first myth that we're going to dissect a little bit, the myth is that This person has OCD and it is my fault. So this Mm. is in the family system and it could be the parent. It could be the spouse. It could be the child feeling very responsible for how their parent is experiencing responses to them. But the first myth is it's your fault. Obviously, fam, it's our fault, right? And so can we look at this myth and what would you say to that, John? Yeah. So there's a few things going on there. First of all, I think it's important that we normalize that experience for people. Like, I think we come out too strong with like, it's not your fault. Well, then it also means, it can mean things like that has nothing to do with you. Uh-huh. It's not your responsibility. You're not involved at all. Cause that's also not true. Right. Right. I think all of us and people with OCD without OCD are incredibly reliant on our conceptualization of free will. Right. When we talk about fault. So I'm not going to send your audience down an existential wormhole here, but... The existential fam is like, are you sure? (laughs) Because we were already there. We're three steps ahead of you, John. (laughs) I'm just saying this idea of let's take a mother who is responding to their anxious and OCD-laden child in a specific way, and that way may not be helpful because that child's anxiety is stressing out the mom and the mom needs to shut it down quick because the mom has all these other stressors. And so maybe she's not being validating or understanding, but maybe she's getting angry and saying, you can't behave this way. Stop washing your hands, whatever it is, right? We can sit back in our therapy chairs and be like, well, that's not good parenting, right? And mom can feel really guilty about it. But there's also a reason why mom is so reactive to that. And that reason predates mom because mom also had a mom and a dad who also had a mom and a dad who also had a mom and a dad. Mm -hmm. And so mom exists within the system right? So her intense reaction to watching her child go through it, there's a lot going on there beyond just she's impatient, she's annoyed, she's not a good enough mom. There's a whole human being there. So to chalk it up to, well, it's your fault for for reacting this way that's not helpful. Or maybe mom's reaction isn't anger. Maybe mom's reaction is complete and total accommodation. Well, I don't know how mom was raised and mom doesn't probably doesn't know how her mom was raised, but Mm -hmm. I bet there's a key there to understanding mom's behavior 
And if she could slow it down and understand herself in the context, well, that could open her up to maybe choosing a different behavior that's more effective. But otherwise, she's just at the mercy of whatever comes up. And what's going to come up is what she learned. Mm-hmm. We're just going to come up from what the people before her learned and so on and so forth, all the way back to the beginning of time, unless somebody lets some new information in. That's often what the magic of therapy is. It's just establishing trust with somebody, opening up, and then the therapist says something you haven't heard before, and you already opened up to receive it. And now it's a part of the information in your head that wouldn't have been there otherwise. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so, so that's the first thing I think of when people oh, it's all my fault. It's like, it actually had to happen this way. Right. So you're, you're, you're over, you're taking too much responsibility for what led you to behave in this way that we're now looking at as ineffective. So if we can get beyond fault, instead of thinking of, I should have known better, which is the lifeblood of self-criticism and get to what would be helpful now, yeah. which the lifeblood of self-compassion, then we can actually get some work done. Yeah. It's, it, it is interesting. I will talk with clients sometimes about what's in your fishbowl. And so we can look outside the fishbowl and be like, I should have been able to do that. Why? I mean, like you're in the fishbowl, right? And what you have are the tools available and probably the learned different ways of interacting with those tools, which is more or less what you're saying. And if you disagree, feel free. I'll be like, okay. We're on the same page. Yeah, yeah. Um, Not to put words in your mouth, but this is what you said. No, just kidding. But in terms of being able to learn some new ways to manage that environment and even adding to your fishbowl, you're still only going to have as much room as your fishbowl has, but there's hope to be able to learn different ways to navigate that environment. And so what you're speaking to is the importance of giving yourself some grace and going, I have the tools I have. I learned what I learned. It totally makes sense that I am engaging with my environment in this way. And though it's not your fault, what's in your fishbowl, what's in our genetic pools, what's in any of these different areas, one thing that you highlight, and and I like how you posture it in the book, is that even if we don't have quote-unquote fault, what is our responsibility and really how we're engaging with the environment here? And so there is responsibility. Now, again, responsibility gets one of those words where we can debate and be like, so basically it's my fault is what yours. Yeah, I'm hearing <laughs> that, right? Like, <laughs> we're yeah. on the same page. Right, right. Okay, okay, gotcha. But no, that's not, that's not what we're saying. What we're saying is our brains are going to brain. Who's at fault for my brain brain in the way it does? Like, I only have so many resources even in controlling my own brain, let alone your brain as a loved one, as a family member. And so is that anyone's fault? It is what it is. But how we react to it and how we react to the distress that OCD brings into that family system, brings into that relationship, we do have an ability to choose different behaviors and coping strategies, we have an ability to take some responsibility. And I I think about this even with my kids, right? You know, something might come up and a teacher might say, hey, your kiddo is being really impulsive. And I'm like, okay, it makes sense because ADHD medication has worn off and they're impulsive, but they're still responsible for their actions. So in an impulsive moment to chuck something across the room, they're going to have a consequence for chucking that across the room. I have utmost empathy for what's happening in their brain, and we still have some responsibility over how we navigate the environment. And so 
part of it is just understanding like fault is just not a great metric and it's subjective. And so it's not really helping us understand what we need to do. But I do like to reposture that we all have an ability to influence and triumph over OCD. And so fault or not, like responsibility or not, free will or not, agency or not, is there hope? Oh, yeah, there's definitely hope. And that's good news. That's what I like to concentrate on as well. Yeah, I think a lot of parents who are struggling with the concept of fault beyond the fact that that's, again, really grounded in the myth of I should have known better, which is a technical impossibility, right? You can't have known better. You could only have known what you knew. Right. And then think accordingly, right? Yeah. But we say, oh, I should have known to do this or known to do that. Yeah, but it didn't occur to you, did it, right? And you're not responsible for what occurs to you. Now you can decide that you're going to approach it differently because new information has entered the scene, but you can't go back in time and, and insert that information. But I do think also families, I think people need a little space to grieve sometimes. So mm -hmm. sometimes like sitting in that fault briefly to just know that it feels like that and, mm -hmm. and have it be validated that it feels like that because fault's not the right word for it, but involvement is, right? Mm -hmm. So how your upbringing and how it informed you to parent, the culture that you're in and the country that you're in and the religion that, or lack thereof that, that your family, whatever your spiritual practice may or may not be like. All these things are influencing what's going on there and you are a part of that system. So you are definitely involved. And then when you realize, hey, something's got to change if I'm going to be able to get the outcome I want, which is a happier, healthier child and a more uh, happier, healthier family system, I'm going to have to make some changes. I think it's natural to go through this period of like, oh, I'm going to make some changes. Is that because I'm bad? <laughs> right. Right. New jerk reaction. Feeling for a little bit, but then allow yourself to move on to the next step of like, okay, I've acknowledged that that's what came up for me. And, and now I'm really looking for, like, you know, what would be helpful now for yeah. me, my child, for my home system? Yeah, no, I think that's a great point. And I, I love how you reframe that as involvement. Involvement in maintaining OCD in the family system or in booting it out in recovery. Involvement ends up being really important. So I like that. Our next myth is... is everyone a little OCD. Yes, my person here is suffering, but I mean, I have some of these quirks too. I can see where they get it. My auntie did this. We see this. That's kind of normal, right? Everyone has a little bit OCD. So what would you say to that, John? It's usually the tone in which it's said that makes me throw up in my mouth a little bit. It's not the statement itself, actually. I think we could work with. But when that statement is said out loud, it's usually said with a tone of dismissal or invalidation or condescension that, that I think is part of the problem. I think that if you look at what people with OCD say that they're afraid of, mm -hmm. it's mostly rational things to be afraid of. Nobody wants to be sick. No one's looking for opportunities to be responsible for somebody's death, right? Mm -hmm. The things that people don't want to happen and the average person doesn't want them to happen. But with OCD, as a psychiatric condition, right? Something is happening in the brain that is causing this person to relate to this experience that we all relate to in a different way. And it's causing an exaggeration of the human condition. The pressure to be, to be certain, to eliminate doubt, to respond to certain thoughts in a certain way, but other thoughts in a different way. That noise is coming from inside the building, right? That has, that, there's, there's something going on there that, that sets that person apart from somebody who just is particular, you know, and likes things neat or is avoidant or, you know, doesn't like roller coasters, doesn't like the way they make them feel. Like, uh -huh. 
you can understand that, that both people might share in that experience of wanting to avoid something that's unpleasant, but their relationship to that experience is totally different. So somebody who is quirky and somebody who has their little things or somebody who's a little neurotic or obsessive or, yes, it is a true statement. I think we all have unwanted thoughts, just like we all have junk mail in our email. Like it is a <laughs> normal event. Yeah. But the relationship to it is really what sets it apart. And I think that's why kids work a book. Yeah, I think some operative words you were using too are like and don't like. And when it comes to OCD, and you even rounded that up in saying, yeah, I think everybody deals with these unwanted dots. But I think that's too part of the issue. People don't think of OCD as unwanted dots. They think of it as what I like or I don't like. And Mm -hmm. that really misses it. Because I would categorize like and not liking as preferences, right? Right. No one is preferring OCD. True OCD. No one's like, yeah, some of that, please. Could I be, like, responsible for maybe even eliminating a room full of people? That's pretty cool. No, no one's like, yay, about that. No one is feeling excited about the idea that they might get kidnapped every time they walk down a sidewalk, if that is one of your themes. It is extremely distressing. And so, yes, we can all deal with unwanted thoughts, but I think just even understanding, isn't everyone a little bit OCD? When we're talking about OCD, we really are talking about unwanted, repeating thoughts that really bring a lot of distress. And there's and, a, and, and impair functioning and like impair it, functioning it a, a condition. Yes, that's where that's where we get it to a disordered level. So if we're thinking of even D, the D in disorder, right, that means automatically that we've reached a level where it has impaired functioning. So aren't we all a little OC? May, you know, again, it has to be unwanted. But when we think a little, there's not like a. It's a little bit turning my world upside down, but I'm mostly okay. It's like, oh my goodness, I am, I'm terrified to leave. Sometimes I'm unable to get my work done. Sometimes it takes nine hours to get simple schoolwork done because I had to rewrite it and rewrite it and reread it and rewrite it. There are, this is, there's not like a little D. It's like, D, y'all, yeah. D, it's here. I, 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 th- I think that for the most part, I mean, we're always going to have trolls and people who are insensitive and people don't understand mental health. But for the most part, I think when people say that, particularly when it's said by a family member about like, well, you know, we all have a little OCD, they're speaking to the fact that they do have unwanted thoughts and maybe they bothered them a little and they wish they didn't have them, but it doesn't impair their functioning. They're speaking to the fact that they have rituals because we all have rituals. It's a completely normal thing to come up with systems that work for you and do it the same way each time so you don't have to think about it. Yeah. And they may even have compulsions, which are things that you'd rather not do, but you feel compelled to do. And if you don't do it, you're not going to be able to relax. That's all fine. The motivation behind that statement is often something like, I really wish that you could relax. I really wish that you could calm down because I hate to see that you're suffering so much and you're telling me you're afraid that you're going to be responsible for this or you're afraid that this thing's going to happen or you're going to get sick or whatever it is. And yeah, those are normal tears. So just calm down. And again, it, it's not always coming from a hurtful place. It's Absolutely. just coming from an ignorant place based on the fact that it makes sense to me. I have these things. They don't bother me. You have these things. They shouldn't bother you. Well, congratulations. You don't have a psychiatric condition called OCD and your family member does and they need a little bit more help than just let it go. Yeah, I think also on the other side of that coin in it, I absolutely agree. I think a lot of it comes from very well-intentioned places. And that's something that's so special about this OCD family community is that 
people love their people so much and their intentions are just unbelievably driven out of love. But I think, too, on the other side of the coin, part of what's driving that sometimes is I see myself in this person. Mm -hmm. And if this is wrong, then maybe I'm wrong, too. Maybe there's a part of me that's messing this up, too. And I'm trying so hard and I want to love this person. I want to believe that I'm okay too. So if they're okay, then I'm okay. And if they're not, then that might mean something's wrong with me too. And I think people sometimes generalize in that way as well. Like, oh my gosh, I can see myself in you and you're struggling with this. And if we're now pathologizing this, then maybe something's wrong with me. And I think that's an important piece because our aim here and part of the importance of psychoeducation and treatment is to be able to shed the shame there and really normalize how common a lot of this is. This doesn't make you a weirdo. This makes you a human being with a brain. And our brains all have different strengths and challenges. And so being able to normalize, like, even if you can see parts of yourself, and I hope you do, Oh, that's lovely. A place where you can connect. And I get it if you don't want to be able to connect about these really harder, more challenging areas. But it actually helps people know they're not alone when they realize like, oh, yeah, I mean, especially within families. When we see OCD running in families, there's actually a lot of strength for people being able to see things and experiencing things from a similar standpoint. So, yeah, I, I think I think that's an important point in terms of wanting people to feel better. And it's driven out of a great place of like, oh, I just want you to be able to relax and know that you're fine. You're fine. And then also going like, oh, if you're wrong, I'm wrong and assigning blame there. Again, it's completely normal not to be perfect. And I think we have a lot of ugly words to describe the various ways we could be imperfect. And it's hard. And I And I think there's a a linguistic problem. It's like hard to talk about these things and then you can't address them. So then you compensate for them or you avoid them. So like you're talking about defensiveness, right? Like if my child has this exaggeration of something I have, does it mean I shouldn't have it? And I don't want him to have it because I don't have it. There's, I think, a very natural narcissism that occurs in any healthy, good, loving parent who's going to view their child as an extension of themselves. And when their child is behaving in a way that they don't think reflects well on them, that's a narcissistic injury. And they're going to want to fix that and correct that because it's a bad look, right? Because it's just a natural phenomenon. I'm not saying it's a great thing. It's something we have to work with and and overcome to see our children as separate entities, but they didn't start as separate entities and they haven't been independent for very long. And for the most part, it is this like my creation sort of vibe. And then, and then that individuation starts to happen later. And I think it's very normal for a parent to be like, oh, what, what is this thing? You can't have this thing. This thing's not good. I don't want this thing in my life. You can't have it. Mm-hmm. And react like something has happened to them, which it has, but it's different from what's happening to the child with OCD. And to try to like fix it or cover it up or push it down or, or, or make it about, you know, the kids not being tough enough or something like that. These are all defense mechanisms. Mm-hmm. And we have to normalize them first because we have to be able to talk about them to see how we're going to work with them and, and overcome them. But if we can't even talk about them, that's the communication shuts down and people just keep repeating the same patterns over and over again. And that's that's our line of work. Communication shut down, <laughs> patterns repeating, OCD or not. Communication can be difficult. 
And again, you learn and take a lot of your cues on how you communicate from your upbringing, from your fishbowl, from the ways that you've learned to relate within your environment. And so it, it, it's funny because a, a lot of people don't love conflict. In fact, I don't think I've ever met somebody, maybe a lawyer, I don't know, that is like, hey, I, I love this. I live for this. But it's funny because I am definitely one to approach conflict because I would rather communicate through it. And my husband hates conflict and would rather absorb all the things. Well, used to be this way, all the things rather than deal with conflict. So when we started dating, I very much confronted this and was like, we're going to wrestle with this one if, if that's how that runs. And both of us needed to learn how to come closer to the middle in that. But it's not that I love conflict, but I think communication. And that's what sometimes people feel like conflict equals communication. And it feels vulnerable to put yourself out there and be like, hey, this is hard. But often I think people are surprised, similar to facing different fears and going, oh, my gosh, that's going to be impossible if we try to discuss this. It can often surprise you and you can go, well, that wasn't so bad. Actually, they kind of hurt me. That's nice. And so being able to learn how to communicate. But often there is a defensiveness that can come up where people have a hard time hearing each other. Because often, especially when intentions were good, if that didn't land well with the other person, then that brings some upset. And how to be able to handle these upsets can really relate to part of the process in treatment even for OCD, where we're learning to hold distress and be able to know like whether distress is there or not is not an indicator on my ability to function in this moment. I can still do lots of things feeling distressed. That's not necessarily a litmus test in terms of my safety or my ability and being able to work on those different pieces of communication, which again is why it's so helpful and important to have family members, loved ones involved in treatment, because it's really hard sometimes without a little bit of an external referee going, okay, wait, we're not here in each other, just a minute, and be able to work through these different things. But also to a point that you have in your book as well, even trying to understand and empathizing and being able to relate to the person in that, you're still not going to ever fully get at what it's like for that person living with OCD. Even if multiple family members have OCD, my experience of OCD is going to be different than my family member's experience of OCD is going to be different than my client's experience. We can relate on a lot of things, but still, it is a journey. It's so, so catered. OCD is so good at customizing itself <laughs> to our specific values and really interacts on that level. So realizing this communication strategy, I mean, if you think about it, we're learning how to communicate back with OCD, too, and go, OK, I'm not going to talk with you about this. I don't have to prove shit to you. And whether I feel upset or okay about this, it's fine. I can live my life. And so it is, it, it gets very complex, but it's an important part of the treatment process as well. Yeah, I think too much emphasis is put on understanding. The emphasis is better put on acceptance and validation and listening. And I mean, understanding is important, but if you get black and white about understanding, then the outcomes aren't, aren't very good, right? It, it, this is the absurdity of comparing yourself to other people, right? It, it goes back again to that. Okay, but if you look at the system where these people come from, what are you comparing yourself to? 
oh, my, my friend's better at this. Well, yeah, your friend has different genetics, was born to a different family in a different house with different set of circumstances that have nothing to do with you. Why would you compare yourself to that? It's, it's not relevant to you in any way, right? Mm-hmm. So, so it's not just that it might be hard for you to understand the person with OCD if you don't have it, or even if you do have it, but their OCD is different or something like that. But this would be true even without OCD. It's impossible to fully understand a complete other human being. That's why we talk about accepting uncertainty in OCD work quite a lot. That's one of the things you have to accept. You have to make space for that. There's a gap between information you can collect from somebody that they're going to tell you and like what it's really like to be inside their brain looking at you. Mm-hmm. Get to know that. And that's okay. That's It's okay for there to be a little bit of mystery. That's what makes life exciting. Hey, there's mystery in my own brain. Like I, I can, I'm inside my own brain and I'm sometimes like, and so that, yeah, absolutely. And giving yourself grace to be different. I think that is really, really important. And so what can be hard sometimes about the medical model or thinking about different ways of processing, brain processing, whether we're looking at neurodivergent forms of processing, whether we're looking at mental health disorders or physical health that can also impact that. One of the important things is just realizing like, yeah, this is going to look different and that's okay. Sometimes when we come up though with like a disorder or we look at a disability or we look at if you need support, whether that's an accommodation or therapy. And again, it depends what we're talking about, but because we have to have these standards to be able to create that rubric. And sometimes folks feel like, oh, well, I mean, if I'm disordered in this, then then this has this whole new meaning. And again, I think kind of just a little bit of a subjective, like what what meets the criteria for disordered for you versus me? We need to be able to have these measures. We need to be able to control for these in the research. But also, if it's affecting you and it's impacting the way you're experiencing your social world, your work, your sleep, your home life, then it's worth it. Whether you think, is this disordered level or not? If you're distressed, you can reach out and go, okay, how can I benefit from some of the support out here? And so whether we're comparing ourselves to other people, other family members, or even these broader rubrics for like, am I a disordered level of person or not? Like, I think we're losing a little bit of the forest through the trees. Are you feeling distressed? Would you like some help with that? Is what you're doing helping move you forward towards your values? Or do you feel like, no, I'm stuck. And in fact, it only feels like I'm in quicksand here. I think we need names for things to point us towards strategies that might be helpful for those collections of trades or experiences where we have the best shot at it being useful, right? It's not a guarantee, but can can we at least start pointed in what might be the right direction based on many other people who have shared these traits saying this worked for me. Right. And so that's why we have names around these different human experiences. Well, this name applies to people with these experiences. You seem to fit pretty closely to people who have these experiences. And we call this OCD and we have treatments that are effective for that. And, and, and these treatments on the whole tend to be more effective than these other treatments. And so let's start here. And then if it's not working, we'll, we'll look around and see what we can do. I remember in graduate school in, in the course where we went over the DSM, I seem to be the only one in the room 
who didn't think the DSM was like total trash and destroying humanity and like completely useless. It was a very anti-DSM crowd that I was in. And I was like, um, hello, hi, I just, uh, you know, I was diagnosed with something and I got treatment for it and it helped. And I kind of feel like maybe having a name for it saved my life. But you guys do your thing. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> oh my gosh. So, so I think, I mean, and again, I don't agree with the, everything that's in the DSM. I look at some of the way that things are categorized and I'm just saying my clinical experience does not support what it says here. It doesn't make sense to me that you'd put this in this category or call this that or, or that you can have a, a condition that's like really intense and difficult to live with and has nine criteria, but you only need to meet five of them to get diagnosed with it. And so you might not have anything in common with anybody else who has this condition. That's a tough sell. Yeah. But the way I think about it is, if you look at a sound engineer's board, you have the, the, the bass and the treble and then all these other levels that do things that I don't understand, right? That can get very complex. And for every piece of music, these levels are going to look a little bit different. And so back to that question about being a little OCD, right? Do you have mood swings? Do you see things that aren't there sometimes or think you heard something that wasn't there, right? Do you get very down for long periods of time? Do you eat in a way that's unhealthy, right? So all of those things, you're going to have those. Are you sometimes proud of yourself and think that you're special, right? Uh, <laughs> do you sometimes think uh, people are going to abandon you, even though you don't have a lot of evidence to support that, right? I think we all have different levels of all of these things. Everybody can, in a theoretical way, be a little bit of everything. But when any of those levels go up or when a certain pattern of those levels go up beyond a certain point, that it is inhibiting your ability to get any joy out of life, interfering in your ability to function, tend to relationships, work, putting your life at risk, causing compensatory behaviors like substance use and things like that, that, that are dangerous and right. Then you look at the levels and you go, know, this song does not sound healthy. <laughs> right. And so then you need to ask for some help so we can adjust the levels a little bit. But I think people put themselves in this box and it's like, you know, there's OCD me and there's not OCD me. That's where this whole discussion of everybody's a little OCD kind of misses the mark, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it's impairment and the distress. That's what makes it a psychiatric condition. But people are complicated and they do have traits of all the possible human experiences, but you got to get the levels somewhat mixed well enough to be something like happy. Yeah, yeah. So if life is the composition, it's about orchestrating how you can create that composition in a way that is going to move me forward in, in the song and be able to have that value rather than just being noise. Yeah. I like that. I like that analogy. Not bad, John. We'll accept that. Thank you. Like, like you need my approval, but you know what? Um, oh, my narcissism level just went up a little. Well, happy to help. There's a number of different myths we could go over, but I'm going to go ahead and shift us over to a little never have I ever game. And so I'm going to go ahead and bring this up. I was telling John before we started recording that I was utilizing chat GPT, which is my great little go-to for, for OCD games as of late. And we're going to do a little bit of a never have I ever. We're not really going to keep score. But we're going to go through some things. You and I both have lived experience of OCD, and we've been verbal and transparent about that. And so just coming up with some different ideas, and we can always type in something other than quirky coping strategies. But, fun. I like this. Yeah. But I just thought we can pick a couple of different ones. You can look through the list here. I'll, like, expand on a little bit. And we can take turns picking a question. We can shake up the category a little bit. But this is never have I ever 
OCD edition. Okay, so John, as my guest, would you like to go first or would you like me to go first? As your guest, I will defer to you. As the host. All right. Well, then I'm just going to take it and run. Okay. So never have I ever created an elaborate dance routine or song to lift my spirits when feeling down. Okay. I totally have. Have you? I have not done this. No. Dance, dance is not my go-to. Anybody who knows me knows that. Oh, I'm not saying <laughs> dance is good. Like, I'm not saying like, hey, we should be on America's Got Talent. But I certainly, <laughs> in songs even more so, I just, life used to be a musical every opportunity. And when Glee came out, I was like, this is me. <laughs> And so I always found fun ways to cope with things. I would make them into songs and sometimes even in a compulsive way. I used to get a lot of car anxiety and I would just be like, OK, I have to sing a song that's going to like calm me down with air conditioner blowing in my face as I sit on the 405 and I'm just going to I'm fine. I'm fine. And I used to have a little bit of a compulsive response, <laughs> even with some songs. So there is my question. You get to pick anyone from the list. It doesn't have to be in order. No, and I just, you know, on that on that question, I, I I have used music to change the way I feel. Like I do respond really strongly to music. Sure. And so definitely I've used songs, like I've created songs to lift my spirits, but I'll definitely like have like a hard day at work and then that will affect what I put on Spotify to like with the intention of like, I'm going to take this song like a drug. <laughs> yes. And, yes. Uh, and, and it's, just, it's amazing to me how effective it can be. And well, I've also had the OCD kind of tangle itself up in certain songs where I've been through periods where I just, there's certain music I couldn't listen to because of the emotional impact it would have on me. And then and that would it'd have such a profound, it wouldn't be like it made me a little sad. It would be more like ruin my life to listen to that, right. that song through it. And I, one of the things that's great about exposure response prevention and, and other strategies that help people get their life back from OCD is the reclamation process. Like I'm taking the song back, right? Yeah. This, this song is well-constructed and, and OCD can't have it. It can't only be associated with that thing. I'm taking it back. Yeah, yeah. That's a really well, nice thing to be able to do. I, I would agree with that. And the arts in general, whether we're thinking of a song, whether we're thinking of a TV show or a movie or a physical piece of art, just a number of different things. I think that's a really good point. And because it is a, a helpful way to express and cope, artists are like, understand where I'm coming from. We got you. We got you. And yeah, it can have a real impact on your mood. So great point. Okay. You get to pick ever, a question. Yeah, I'll, go, I'll go with never have I ever embraced... Uh, talking to inanimate object strategy to ease frustration. This is very me. I talk to inanimate objects all the time. Really? Usually I'm mad at the inanimate object <laughs> and I need it to know. And it's very important that it knows that it didn't do what it said it was going to do. And I always do what I say I'm going to do. So you have one job, whatever you are, thermostat, you know? Yeah. <laughs> you have one job. I get very, very engaged with it. Also, robot customer service telephone oh thing. yeah like I, I can't I don't know I just can't handle them I'm a, I'm a relatively even killed person in most situations but I can crack and then act totally irrational and those things make me so irrational I have found myself screaming at them I know they can't hear me yeah I'm like sorry I didn't get that could you, you could you crazy? repeat that <laughs> press the pound sign press the pound sign <laughs> yes I'll create new vulgarities to insult them with yeah uh, so yeah, talking to inanimate objects is uh, definitely something I've done to ease frustration. You know, I I don't know if I've talked to inanimate objects as much as I'm talking to myself 
because usually like let's say it was the thermostat and it's not working i'd be like what is going on here nicole you can figure this out or whatever so i'm probably more likely to like perfect my hyper responsibility in the moment but i definitely talk to in different ways you know like if it, if it starts to work i'll be like now was that so hard <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean like i'm more inclined if something goes wrong i'm like this is why we can't have nice things and again like it's a, a talk to myself right like uh, like yeah all right nicole all right so i think that's like internalization versus externalization right there's somebody listening to this right now who's figuring out who we are basically. yes yeah, yeah. I mean, this is diagnostic, basically, right? <laughs> no, just kidding. <laughs> uh, but you're right. You're right. Are we externalizing it? Are we internalizing it? I have a feeling I externalize some of the things. Well, we'll see. Maybe, maybe I'll just be an internalizer. We'll see. Okay, next question. Never have I ever engaged in random acts of kindness to lift my own spirits. I mean, I would say that I generally, if I'm doing random acts of kindness, I'm trying to do it to serve the other person, not because I don't deserve a nice moment for myself, but I think I'm usually less thinking about myself and thinking more about how hard things have been for this person, friend, loved one, and so, or just, you know, in general, life's hard. See see a day full of clients and I go, oh, gosh, you know, just really reminded of the different pain that people walk through that you don't necessarily know. But sure, I can't say that I've never been like, hey, I am a very nice empathizer. Go me. Uh, and, and so I'm sure I can say that I've lifted my own spirits by helping others. That feels good. Yeah. Yeah, I can relate to that one. I, I think I do this. I don't know that I do it specifically to lift my spirits. I mean, I have a tendency to wallow. I, sometimes like if I, my spirits are low, I'd sometimes, like I was saying before, I might listen to music to like change it, but I might also listen to music to intentionally make it worse to just explore it or maybe not necessarily make it worse, but to, but to align myself with the feeling like, you know, this awful mood needs a soundtrack. I have a whole playlist in Spotify called moment music. And it's this very kind of like end credits crane shot kind of music, yeah. very mellow, very emotional, like ethereal. And sometimes I just want to like bask in whatever kind of ennui I think I'm having on my ride home from work. Yeah. Um, so I think I do these random acts of kindness more like science experiments. I'll see these opportunities arise and I'll be like, oh, I could totally do this for this person. It might brighten their day. And I'll just do it because it's like, what a neat thing. I have to admit, I think I kind of, I think I do the opposite too. But like yeah. Random acts of selfishness. <laughs> I think I'll just go ahead and take this pen. I, they're not going to miss it. <laughs> Whatever it is. So, yeah, I, I do both. I think the, the key word there is random. I'm not yeah. I'm not entirely sure why I do a lot of things. <laughs> yeah, I will say I definitely have done random acts of selfishness. I think like at the end of the day, I think we all probably have, you know, <laughs> save Mother Teresa, who is really just a special person. Uh, I think most of us could identify with having that. And, you know, there's a place for that. And sometimes that can also get you into trouble. Okay, I, I, like to, I like to retroactively explain some of my behavior sometimes. So things will happen even in the therapy room and we're working with somebody and I'll say something that just pops in my head that's like totally off the wall and totally disorients somebody. And, and they'll be like, why, why, why would you say that? Like, why, yeah. why would that be the thing that's on your mind? I'm like, I don't know. Did it work? Well, yeah, but that's besides the point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, I've had, as part of my own OCD, I've had to resist the urge 
to explain my positive intention with something, whether I think it landed well. And again, I, I feel like I have fairly good intuition, but my intuition isn't always right. But I have that fear of what if I could have neglected something in here? And so I like to over explain. It's a it's a gifting of mine. And so I've had to just allow myself to go. It's OK. And even if, if they don't understand, they could also ask. Right. You know, yeah. I don't have to necessarily explain this, but I, I, I like to explain things in retrospect. I just found that functions more compulsively for me in general, but not always. It goes back to what we were talking about before. It's okay for there to be some mystery. It's okay for there to be a gap between what you know and what you can fully understand. And I tell my patients, particularly my more perfectionist patients all the time, like something is different from the way that you think it should be. And you're assuming that's a problem. Maybe it's better that way, right? Maybe an antique piece of furniture is worth more if it has a little scratch on it. It really looks like it's from the 1800s, right? This is a fact, right? So you're going to walk out of this room and you're going to have the thought, I didn't tell them everything I needed to tell them. Or I didn't explain it the right way. And you're going to assume that that's a problem. And then you're going to worry about it. Mm-hmm. Problem. Maybe it's better that way. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to do the same thing. Right. I, I could have given better advice or a different kind of homework. Or we could have done a different exposure. I'm not really sure. Okay. Maybe it's better that I'm not sure. Like, why, why assume that that has to be a problem? It could be something kind of exciting and mysterious. And it keeps the passion alive in the therapeutic relationship. We don't know. We'll find out. <laughs> or we won't. <laughs> Yeah. Okay, I'm going to bring up one more list. I'm going to say create a never have I ever list. Again, we're using chat GPT for bad coping skills. Whatever chat thinks that means, I am here for it. So let's see what it comes up with, John. Okay, it's like, certainly, I'm here for it. Oh, uh, wow. Ooh. Ooh. So fast. It is. is- it is so freaking fast. Is that not amazing? Okay. This is a good list. Wow. Wow. Yeah. This one, oh, this one's got a lot of things going on for it. I'm going to screenshot these chat GPT lists and I'm going <laughs> to put them on the blog because I think like I do really like this list. What is this last one? Ooh. I like that this list is actually more relatable than the than the positive coping list. I think that this is a list of things that are objectively like unhealthy coping. <laughs> right. But what, yeah. yeah, it's interesting because I had to kind of think, I had to get a little creative in how I asked for it because it was too direct on mental health. It was like the typical canned mental health, like gone to therapy. And I'm like, please, we're therapists. Come on. Yeah. Okay. So I, I can't remember. Did I ask the last one or did you? I don't remember. I'll, gosh, I think I relate to all of these. These are really good. The only, there's one here about I never have ever isolated myself from friends and family instead of seeking support during tough times. That's not really my MO. I'll, I'm, I'm pretty good about asking you for support. I'm, I might even be a little bit annoying about it. Yeah. Uh, but I'm trying to see one where it's like, oh, let's man. see. This is a really good list. Yeah. Gosh, there's so many here. How about, okay, I'll, I'll own this. Never have I ever lashed out at loved ones or friends when feeling overwhelmed. I've definitely kind of hit my limit. I wrote about this in one of my blogs about mindfulness, actually. Where, again, I just was sort of, I'll have these experiences where I'm stuck in my head ruminating over this or that, and I'll be thinking about things that are stressing me out and, and also trying to complete a task. And if somebody, and it could be the person I love most in the world, is also trying to give me information while I'm trying to complete that task, and the task doesn't go the way I want it to, yeah. that'll put me over the edge and I'll immediately feel like it's the person's fault for talking to me. Like... Like somehow they should have known that my brain was full 
And by over flooding my brain, they interfered in the task getting completed. And uh -huh. I'm mad for no reason. And I just become a lunatic just for, for, for a moment. And I always apologize and, 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 and make up for it afterwards. And that has to do with my level of reactivity, right? So if I'm in my very kind of mindful state, everything moves a lot slower. And so I can notice these reactions and say, just don't respond to that. Don't, don't say anything. But if I'm, if I'm not in my more mindful states, the reactions overwhelm me and I'll just, and I can, you know, would you shut up? I don't care about what you're talking about right now. Uh -huh. like, this person's being completely innocent and perfectly pleasant, perfectly nice. And I'm being a complete jerk. Uh -huh. uh, I'll, I'll, I'll own that. I have lashed out at loved ones when I'm feeling overwhelmed, but, but, I, but I'll, I'll add the caveat that I can pretty much recognize it almost immediately after the fact and then do what needs to be done to repair it instead of sticking to my guns and making excuses for it. Yeah. 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 I think, I think probably all of us have had these moments and the reality is with our loved ones, there is this delicious misery in that we're often feeling safest with those folks. So we tend to sure. be a little more unraveled, you know? And so I think in terms of like my mom, my husband, my kids, they probably get to see the most amazing sides of me, meaning they for sure have seen me come a bit unraveled. But I have different like types of lash out. Like I, I can get really, I'm not a yeller, but I can get really low and pointed in my oh, discussion. Yeah, that's, that's much scarier. Yeah. yeah and I'm like, takes me seriously when I yell. The kids laugh at me if I live every day. It's my Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But you're right. Whispering that there's a bomb in the building is much more disturbing than shouting. <laughs> Whispering that, like, the way you put that. Yeah. Yeah. And in terms of the never have I ever isolated myself from friends or family, which you were commenting on, instead of seeking support, I probably do, but I give them the cliff notes version. I'm probably rarely going to unlock <laughs> and reveal all. And it's one thing, like, I remember, and my husband and I have talked about this on the podcast, but once when we were dating, he had a very difficult breakup before we dated. And so he had a lot of anxiety about just commitment in relationship. And I was very like, that's okay. That's fine. Like, let's take this a day at a time. We're just getting to know each other. It's not like we need to walk down the aisle or buy a house together or anything like that. But once he was asking me, like, how is this impacting you? Which this was an amazing question. I was like, oh, to have somebody that I was dating and newly dating ask me this. But how is my anxiety around this impacting you? I just kind of want to check in with where you are. And I'm like, you know what? That is so thoughtful. And I really appreciate that you're checking in with me. And, you know, I just think, like, it's amazing that we can communicate about this. And it's really valid why you have this distress and anxiety around relationship. And I honor that. And he was like, thank you. And usually that's where that conversation would end with most people I dated. They'd be like, thank you. I am pretty awesome, aren't I? I did that well, huh? But he was like, thank you. And you didn't really answer the question. <laughs> you really were empathetic to how that impacted me, but you did not say anything about how that impacted you. And it was this aha moment where it was like, oh my gosh, I did do that. And I think in part as a therapist, it's not about us. And we need to learn how to draw that wall in, in the arts, whether you're playing a part or whatnot, like you learn to become that character and shut pieces and compartmentalize pieces of yourself off. But I think this is, if I isolate, it's 
It's something I do without thinking. It is just an automatic response that since being in a relationship with my husband, I have been able to help unpack. So I credit, I credit you, Boo. I know he's listening. He, he's so sweet to listen to all these. And he'll be like, well, thanks. That would be nice to hear in person, too. I'll tell you. No, I have told him. But yeah, yeah. That's funny. I can, I can relate very much to your husband's experience of dating after having been through a powerful relationship experience before that and, and, and being unsure how to proceed. He, he handled, it sounds like he handles that thing in a much, much more suave, cool way. Like my MO when I was dating my wife was I would make her a mix CD and, and like great songs that I wanted her to know were great songs. And I would print out like a picture of us and put it on the CD and then give it to her and then tell her, don't read into it. Because <laughs> I don't, I'm just not sure how I feel. <laughs> You're like, don't get too attached to this idea. Yeah. I feel I'm immediately regretting. <laughs> yeah. I did just before I forget, I was just thinking about how we lash out at the people that we love because we, we, we trust that they're there, right? And they're not going to immediately reject us and run away. And how clinically relevant that is, right? To families with OCD. Often we'll see a child or a partner with OCD who's seeking a lot of reassurance or accommodation. And, and they're not doing the same that in their social circle, right? There's usually like an arbiter of truth, mom, not dad, or dad, not mom, mm -hmm. who can answer the questions and has to keep answering the questions and responding to the texts and whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And that's the person that, you know, they, they feel that they could trust. And that same answer from somebody else wouldn't feel as complete or they wouldn't risk the judgment that might come from it, this person has been established as a, as a constant, not a variable for them. So it, it is interesting how we, we do sometimes, we, we can't help it. We see the advantage in having a meaningful relationship. And then we take that advantage because the OCD might be pressuring us to do it. Like we have to get this answer. We're going to lose our minds. Right. So we know the relationship can take the dent that might be caused from this behavior. And we wouldn't risk that in a less important relationship because we knew we couldn't withstand the denting that it causes. It's just interesting how those systems develop. Yeah. And oftentimes on a subconscious level, because it's something that if you stop and think about it retroactively, hindsight's twenty twenty, and we can go, oh, yeah, I guess I do do that. But it also speaks to what we were talking about earlier in growing up in your fishbowl and having those learned dynamics. And yes, we don't know how our mothers were mothered and how their mothers were mothered, but we do have some of these learned strategies that have passed down through time of skills on how to navigate our fishbowl. And sometimes we're going to do what we learned based on what we saw. Sometimes we're going to overcorrect and do the exact opposite. Because we're like, I'm not down about that shit, so I'm going to try this. And all of that creates part of our learning when we're thinking about how we engage with different thoughts, different behaviors. And so really being able to look at that is a really interesting point. As we wrap up, what would your top two recommendations for family be in terms of they may be hearing this, they may be very new to this journey, or they may have been in this for years and years and years, but what would your top two recs be? And what would two unhelpful things be? Because I think it's always helpful to build insight. Again, this isn't going to be everybody's experience, but just based even on your personal and professional experience, what are things that tend to be less helpful when we think of helping families navigate through all this? Wow. Okay. So what's helpful is, from the family member perspective, is uh, educating yourself on what OCD actually is. And, and getting through that myth of everybody's got OCD, right? And actually learning about the disorder 
have a book. John Abramowitz's book is good. There's, there's lots of information, iocdf.org. It's not hard to get information about OCD. And it's interesting because it is one of those things where the internet doesn't do a terrible job of providing information. Sometimes you would say, don't look this up on the internet. You're not going to understand it, right? Like, I wouldn't say look up borderline personality disorder on the internet to understand it better. I would want to give a specific resource for that. But something like OCD, the things that are going to come to the top, they're usually going to be pretty reliable sources like IOCDF. So yeah, educate yourself at OCD. That's, that's on the recommendation side. And then on the you know, less helpful side, I would advise against trying to become the expert or to become your child's therapist or your spouse's therapist or your partner's therapist, because you don't want to lose the whole point of treatment and, and getting your life back from OCD is also to maintain and improve the health of your relationship. So you don't want to lose the relationship in the process of trying to do that. So chasing your loved one around with an OCD workbook and, and saying, here's what you're supposed to do is not likely to be helpful. Like if you're a mom, stay a mom. You can be a very well-educated mom, but don't lose sight of the fact that, you know, you want to become the, the therapist. Yeah. Uh, well, and I would say, too, in your book, you talk about that really as the golden rule, like trying to just remain being a family member. Like, be, if your mom, be mom and remember what you're fighting for, right? Like, I'm fighting for this relationship with my kid or my spouse or my brother of a different mother here. I am fighting for that. And it's not all about OCD. It's actually, we don't want OCD butting in on what we have. And what we have is more important and more special and more sacred. So, sorry to jump in and interrupt ah, there. Beautiful. But I, you, I love it. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so one more recommendation, one more bad idea. Uh, one more recommendation would be to to consider that even though you don't understand what your loved one is doing with the OCD all the time, consider that it does make sense to them. So try to open up to the idea that, you know, in their internal world, this behavior that they keep saying they hate and they want to stop and they promise they stop, but they can't seem to stop, right? In the moment that they're continuing to engage in this behavior, that's the best idea that's coming up for them. That's the best solution to their problem in that moment. And, and just take some time, take that beat to just consider what it must be like to be them and to be in that position where the best thing they can think of doing is the thing that they promised they weren't going to stop doing or that they hate doing or that's not working and they know it. But in that moment, what's come up for them is this is what has to be done. Mm -hmm. So just take that time. You, you don't have to get it. You just have to consider it, mm -hmm. right? That, it, that there's something going on in there that's different from how you think that makes sense to them. Yeah. I, that that can help on the compassion front and the validation front. And then also to, to take care of yourself and like, it's okay. Like you don't understand, but there is a rationale that's happening and you just can't see it. And then back to bad ideas, making it all about yourself. Like, is this because I'm a bad parent? This is because I can't do anything right. This is because of this, because yeah, the default thing. Yeah. Right. It happens not to be true, but even if it were true, exploring it isn't helpful. Like it's not going anywhere. Mm -hmm. It's an empty space. You go deep into trying to figure out what this has to do with you not being good enough. And you will find that that journey never ends. Okay. It'll be much better to ask what would be helpful now. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, John. I really appreciate you taking the time. Can you let folks know where they can find out more information about you and the work that you're doing? Yeah, my main hub is ocdbaltimore.com. That's the website for both the Center for OCD and Anxiety, where we do all of our outpatient work, treating OCD and related disorders. And within that page, there are also links to the retreat, which is our adult psychiatric residential program, where we, we treat OCD in a higher level of care, as well as OCD+, and you name it. 
So that's the main hub. You can also find me on Facebook. I think my handle is John Hirschfield and on Instagram, my handle is OCD Baltimore and OCD Baltimore on Twitter as well. All right. So we'll have that linked on this episode's blog. But yes, just another big thank you for taking the time. And again, you can check out John's book as well as many other books that he's written at this point and publications. We get to add that to the list. So that's fun. But thanks again, John. Really appreciate you being here. Nicole, thanks so much for the invite. This was great. Thank you for that. All right. I love it. What a fun chit chat. Thanks, John, for all your sharing today and for being a good sport with the games and the format. We do love a good game here, don't we, fam? And I have to say, I think Never Have I Ever is a keeper. I'll have to keep that one in my pocket for our next game episode because we do enjoy gamifying treatment chats. But hey, I love how John brought us to a full circle moment and sharing about the dents, huh, fam? Particularly because when we think about dents, And when we think about the impact, about the pressure that OCD can bring into the family system, into relationships, dents tend to have a more pejorative connotation or meaning, right? Like you get dents if you can't take the pressure, right? Or you're not strong enough or something. There's some kind of system failure. I mean, we can assign meaning to so many of these dents. But then to reframe this idea as even though it's hard and even though it hurts, it's no small thing that this person, your person, has built their trust in you. And while there's nothing even remotely fun about having OCD, having a bond that is experienced as capable, capable, despite all the pressure in the world that's coming at it, that's pretty incredible. That's you, You may feel like you're caving in under the pressure, and it's hard, so hard, and it is hard. So I will validate you all the live long day. But wow, what strength you have. What strength your loved one has. It's amazing. And together, we're capable of rising above and beyond OCD. So though we may walk this road with some pretty hefty dents, they are dents, not defeats. And we're strong. Our loved ones are strong. Also, did you hear? Did you hear what I hear? (laughs) Did you hear John talking about, and I believe his words were the, quote, absurdity of comparing yourself to other people? He even went on to say, quote, it's not relevant to you in any way. So he was talking about that. And I mean, I didn't have enough time to chat with John about this, but I hear certain words now and relevancy is certainly one of those buzzwords, but it was giving me real ICBT vibes. Anybody with me? (laughs) And for newer fam, ICBT stands for inference-based CBT, which is another evidence-based practice that is gaining quite a bit of traction in addition to ERP, ACT being acceptance and commitment therapy, medication support. We have treatment options. Options for kicking OCD to the curb. And that, that is really great because that theory teaches us to look and weigh the evidence. If the evidence is there and it's relevant, use that. Feel concerned, be disgusted. But if you don't, or it's evidence, but planted evidence that has nothing in the world to do with you, just like John was talking about how comparing your situation to another person's situation with all different factors is really an irrelevant comparison right? So I just had to mention because I can't hear relevancy now without just ding, 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 thinking about ICBT. And if you're curious about learning more about ICBT, you can look back at any of my older podcasts where I have talked about ICBT specific content. 
Additionally, with the start of the water cooler chats this past summer, I started the YouTube channel for OCD Family Podcast, and I have been in the process of updating the season one catalog as well as adding our new episodes, including this episode over at YouTube. So if you're interested in learning more about ICBT, search OCDFamilyPodcast.com or check out the YouTube channel because as I'm uploading my older catalog too, I am creating playlists that are specific to different content areas. So just look for the ICBT playlist and you can get more information on ICBT or you can visit ICBT.online for lots of resources and support. Additionally, we've talked about exposure and response prevention today and exposures in general and medication support, as I just mentioned. And as I stated, John is a part of the International OCD Foundation Scientific and Clinical Advisory Board and on that BTTI faculty. And so you can learn more about the International OCD Foundation as well as the BTTI and John and full resources too at iocdf.org. So I will link all those in this episode's blog along with information on where you can find John, learn about his books, all that jazz. Okay, so that brings me to today's intrusive thought segment, which is the application segment of my show. I do it each and every single week. I try to challenge us, fam, with one or two practical applications that we can take from today's episode and put it into practice today, this week. So I mentioned at the top of the show, we're almost halfway through the month. And what's the halfway point? Anyone? Anyone? That's right. Halfway through February is Valentine's Day. Now, Valentine's Day tends to trigger some big feelings for folks. People seem to really enjoy it or hate it. It's a lovely or a painful reminder of relationships or lack thereof. And while OCD does love a good black and white moment, all or nothing thinking, it's either all good or all bad, I'm going to challenge us to do something a little different this year when it comes to Valentine's Day. Now, if you're part of our replay fam and you're like, Nicole, Valentine's Day has come and went, okay? It's okay. We can still make it work. Make it work, fam. Gotta channel my inner Tim Gunn, which I love. Make it work this week. You can still make it work. But here's the deal. Valentine's has grown into this cultural, commercial celebration of love in many places around the world. And while love can definitely extend to others, what about the love for ourselves? Indeed, we are with ourselves every day. Every day. (laughs) Am I right? So what I want you to do today or Valentine's or Replay Fam again, pick a day. I want you to do something for you. Maybe that means you take a note from Miley and you buy us a flowers. You get my drift. Maybe you can create your own playlist. John was talking about creating mood playlists and moment playlists and playlists of good music that he wanted to share with his significant other now wife. I mean, admittedly, I have to say I am a big fan of creating playlists for my kids with music that ranges many decades, but overall it's feel good, it has clean messages, and it just, it's like talking about how awesome you are, right? Because what I want is that message to soak in for them, that even if they're just playing around and singing a song, they can be reminded of their strength. For this reason, one of my daughter's favorite songs is Katy Perry's Roar. That's right, classic. I hesitate to say this, but an oldie but a goodie. How how long ago was that oldie? Oh my gosh. Let me look. Katy Perry Roar year. 2013. It was 11 years ago. Oh my gosh. It was a preteen ago. I can't believe it. Oh my word. 
Anywho, she just gets really into it. It's really adorable to see a little six-year-old singing Roar with like all her gusto and heart. But also, it gives me the mom heart melting into a puddle because she is impassioned and exuberantly singing this song that talks about her strength. And you're going to hear her roar, you guys. So I do this for them. So they can remember that they can roar, that they don't need to give up, that they are the making of a legend. But how often do we do that for ourselves? I mean, John does it. John, I give you credit there. (laughs) He's like, I am on top of the playlist. But how often do we do that for ourselves with the empowering message, with the self-love message? And I know we mentioned narcissistic traits a few times today, but a narcissist, it does not make if you're just taking care of yourself. And I think often people can feel like, oh, I'm doing this for me. It's not good enough. No, you're worth it. You're good enough. You are absolutely worth it. And in fact, when we don't take care of ourselves, that's when we cease being able to be helpful and take care of others. Because strength or not, we can't sustain helping and loving on everyone else if we aren't investing in our own selves, recharging our own batteries, and taking that time to appreciate us, to love ourselves. So for this Valentine's, I want you to do me a favor. I want you to show yourself a bit of love. Maybe you get yourself a Starbucks drink. I love the birthday drinks from Starbucks, by the way. If you guys are like app users for Starbucks, they tend to give you a birthday drink. In fact, there's like a lot of different establishments that will do birthday prizes. I'm always amazed at what some of my friends are like, it's my birthday. I hit up this place, this place, this place for all the birthday things. I was like, you got game and respect. I respect you. That's amazing. But I love it when like Starbucks gets me a drink and I get that paying for your own drink might feel a little more lame or just like, what is this? It's just coffee. But if you looked at it as I'm treating myself because I care about me and I'm going to do a little something for me today, could brew at home or I could go get a Starbucks or I could get a latte or a frappuccino or, or, you know, that new coffee with olive oil in it. I don't know, but they have some kind of olive oil thing going on and I'm not sure what that's about. But you know what? I'm not going to yuck someone else's yum. So you do you. Show yourself some love. And if you do, share about it on social media. I want you to do it on Valentine's. Or if you do it leading up to Valentine's, save your picture. Yes. And I want you to share it on social. Tag OCD Family Podcast on February 14th. And I'm going to take one of those and give back by giving one of y'all some free merch from OCDFamilyPodcast.com merch store. Because I just want you to know, hey, I see you and I love that you're loving on yourself. Thank you. It's really, I mean, we are doing so much to try and help our loved ones. We've also got to be able to help ourselves. So share your love. Let me give some love back because I'm here for it and we're better together. And I want you to know that I see you. And hey, acts of kindness. We talked about acts of kindness. Do we ever do acts of kindness? Right, John? I mean, I'm bringing it back to the chat. I do love a full circle moment. So if you're new to us, this is my second full circle moment. Not that I'm counting, although I did. And let's get out there this week. Show some love to ourselves. And I'll announce remarch on next week's podcast. So thanks again for joining us, fam. And thanks again to our guest, John. I hope you all have a wonderful and beautiful happy love day and showing love to yourself because you're worth it. And with that, I'll see you next week. Thank you for joining me and our OCD family community. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please like and subscribe to the OCD Family Podcast wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Did you find this content helpful? Please consider leaving a review. The more people that know they're not alone, the better. 
For more information regarding today's podcast, please visit ocdfamilypodcast.com and remember to join the email list while you're there. It will provide you with the most up-to-date information, resources, and the download on the family chatter. Oh yeah, nothing says family like John and me fighting back against OCD. That's right, I went there. And you can too at ocdfamilypodcast.com.